I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Kendra Kruger. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, August 25th, 2015. Coming up, we'll hear about a smart gun designed to prevent accidental shootings of children. It's being developed by a Boulder scientist who has just graduated from high school. And we'll talk with Scott McIntosh, director of Boulder's High Altitude Observatory, which is celebrating its 75th anniversary. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. When methane escapes to the atmosphere unburned, it becomes a greenhouse gas many times more potent than carbon dioxide. A new study from Colorado State University indicates the largest source of U.S. methane emissions comes from a source that the EPA does not entirely monitor for leaks. It's the nation's gathering and processing facilities, meaning compressor stations, pipelines, and storage units along the way between an oil and gas well and a processing facility. Anthony Marchese from the Colorado State University study found that 1% of all the methane produced domestically is lost during gathering and processing operations. One half percent may not sound like a lot, But according to the study, the leaky pipes and other processing equipment generates 30% of methane emissions in the current U.S. greenhouse gas inventory. In addition to adding to greenhouse gases, this leaky methane may be leading to a $400 million loss in revenue for oil and gas producers, equal to the amount of natural gas consumed annually by 3.2 million U.S. homes. The study was published last week in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. Another Colorado State University researcher has made headlines this week by doing brain imaging that ties brain flexibility in older adults to exercise. Agnieszka, Berzinska, and colleagues have shown in past studies that people who have higher brain variability in white matter areas of the brain tend to perform better on cognitive complex tasks, especially when it comes to intelligence tasks and memory. In their new study, researchers found that, on average, older adults who were more active had better white matter structure than their less active peers. And older adults who regularly engage in moderate to vigorous physical activity have more variable brain activity at rest than those who don't. This variability is associated with better cognitive performance, researchers say. The new findings are reported in the journal PLOS One. And now a word about the science of having a really good cry. And to set the mood, let's start with music from one of the biggest handkerchief ringers of all time. This music is from the movie Hachi, A Dog's Tale. It's based on a true story about a faithful dog named Hachi, who always walked to the train station in the afternoon to greet his master as he returned from work. One day, while at work, Hachi's master died of a heart attack. That same day, Hachi walked to the train station as usual. When his master didn't come out of the train, Hachi waited for hours until members of the man's family realized what was happening and came to the station and took Hachi home. 
Day after day, year after year, Hachi went back to the train station To study the science of crying, researchers at the University of Tilburg in the Netherlands recruited 50 people and made them watch Hachi, A Dog's Tale. After the movie ended, the researchers asked them how they felt. The 32 people who stayed dry-eyed reported they didn't feel much different at all. As for the 28 who had spent at least part of the movie stifling sobs or wiping their eyes, they reported strong feelings that changed over time. At first, these people who had cried felt sadder, worse than before the movie began. But 20 minutes later, their mood had returned to normal. 90 minutes later, they actually reported feeling happier. The Netherlands researchers report that these mood changes happened whether the observers shed only one tear during the movie or they cried buckets. The researchers also noted that similar results have found in retrospective studies where people are asked to rate their mood levels after having a good cry. The studies published this week in Springer's Journal of Motivation and Emotion. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Kendra Kruger. The recent sentencing of the man responsible for the Aurora Theater shootings has once again brought the issue of mass killings into the headlines. A teenage scientist from Boulder faced that tragedy by looking to technology as a way to prevent them. And while he didn't find a way to stop mass shootings, he's now working to prevent another tragedy the accidental shooting of children who get their hands on a family gun. Let's listen in to this report from How on Earth's Shelley Schlender. It was three years ago when a gunman opened fire in a crowded Colorado theater. 315 and 314 for a shooting at Century Theaters. 14, the gunman, James Holmes, killed 12 people and injured 70 others. The Aurora Theater shooting happened when I was 15. Kai Klepfer was a sophomore at Boulder's Fairview High School. He had a talent for technology and had been taking apart video machines and teaching himself engineering since the age of five. He decided to focus on preventing firearm tragedies. I started getting interested in trying to make firearms safer in some way. I kind of set out to you know, improve the safety of firearms. Klepfer wanted to make a gun that wouldn't work in the hands of a killer. While he believed he could design that gun, he also realized it would be impossible to keep dangerous people from buying guns. Then he changed his focus and realized there were other gun-related tragedies he could do something about, as TV news reports from around the country made clear. Today, staff at Rogers High School are dealing with the aftermath of an apparent accidental shooting involving one of their freshmen. State police now say it was another child inside this Ford City home who accidentally pulled the trigger of a 9mm pistol, shooting a 5-year-old. You know, Every 30 minutes in the United States, a child dies or is injured by a firearm. Add up a child every 30 minutes over even, say, a week, and you have an astronomically larger number of people than has ever been injured in any type of mass shooting in the United States. Klepfer's numbers come from a study done by the Children's Defense Fund. A more recent study by the American Academy of Pediatrics mostly backs him up. They found that at least 10,000 kids or teens are killed or injured by guns every year. Klepfer decided the gun he would design would be a safer weapon. 
it would only fire when unlocked by the fingerprint of the owner or authorized user, not for anyone else. It takes a normal firearm and modifies it to only work with the correct user. It took seven months for Klepfer to create a plastic smart gun prototype. I spent 1,500 hours working on this over the course of one school year, which is equivalent to having a full-time job at the same time as attending school. He entered his fingerprint handgun in the local science fair where he won and kept winning all the way to the world's top youth science competition. At the age of 16, he won the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair. 7.4 million people across the world compete at um, you know, some level of that, but only 1,500 people each year get to attend the actual Intel Science Fair. And so I was amazingly nominated, you know, selected by the judges to attend the Intel Science Fair and actually ended up winning the first place grand award in engineering for that year. The Intel Award included a small cash prize. Klepfer applied for a grant from the Smart Tech Challenges Foundation, whose mission is to foster innovation in firearm safety. He received $50,000. Over the last year or so, I've been using that grant money to further develop my technology from you know, the plastic prototype that I have now to um, actually integrating that technology into you know, a live metal firearm. He says the idea of a smart gun like this is not really popular with gun manufacturers or their customers. Last time that a firearm manufacturer even said they were going to think about developing smart firearms, um, they got boycotted and almost went out of business um, because the majority of their current customers decided that they couldn't accept um, this firearm manufacturer developing smart firearms. He believes that over time, the free market will let this gun catch on. You know, much like the difference between CDs and tape cassettes, there's almost no reason why you would pick a tape cassette over a CD other than the fact that you're afraid of the CDs being new. You know, in some ways, this is exactly the same sort of thing. He expects to one day see his smart gun for sale side by side with regular firearms. This doesn't change the function of the firearm at all. Um, it just makes it safer. Constantly seeking feedback, Klepfer shows the plastic prototype to Kai Javes, a deputy with the Boulder County Sheriff's Office who peppers the teenager with questions. What about durability? You're dealing with a lot of force. Things that regularly uh, explode. Yes. yes. <laughs> and, you know, and the violence of the action of the gun. Right. I mean, Javes points out that a safer gun will never be a substitute for proper training, but it could make a difference in a far too common situation. I know a lot of people leave a gun on a nightstand because they want to have accessibility to it. To me, this is the answer to that. And Javes has a request for the young inventor. When you get a working prototype, I would love to shoot it. Kai Klepfer plans to spend the next year focusing on refining his fingerprint handgun. Then he'll start classes at one of the world's top science schools, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. I'm Joel Parker, and you are tuned to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter and making the whole world smarter about the sun, earth, and space is the High Altitude Observatory with headquarters located in Boulder. The observatory is currently celebrating its 75th anniversary. Here to tell us more about 
What the observatory does and how they're celebrating is the High Altitude Observatory's director, Scott McIntosh. Welcome to How on Earth, Scott. Good morning, Joel. So, High Altitude Observatory, HAO, UCAR, NCAR, it's all alphabet soup here in, <laughs> in Boulder. Uh, what is HAO? So HAO is really the component of NCAR that studies how the sun interacts with the Earth um, over kind of short time scales. We call it space weather, parallels to weather, of course, sure. and then also space climate, how the space environment evolves over longer periods of time. So how does a space weather man or weather person measure space weather? Well, I mean, we have um, observatories on the ground. We have satellites up in space, um, lots of uh, numerical codes. So you take you take observ observations of the sun. You watch events happen or you watch streams of particles and all kinds of matter, charged or uh, neutral, streaming out from the sun. We capture it either with particle sensors or with imagers. We feed that into models, just like the weather models on Earth, and then project that out to what what impacts the Earth's atmosphere. And why? I mean, why? So, I mean, I, I, I know <laughs> I want to know what the weather is today, what, what I'm going to wear, but uh, uh, what am I, what's going to change in my daily routine if I look up the space weather reports? You know, probably not that much. <laughs> um, mostly it affects, you know, telecommunications companies, satellite operators, you know, national and international governments. It's really about assets in space at the short term. And how does it affect those? Well, I mean, if you've got streams of charged particles that come past your electrically operating satellites, you want to know when is a good time to, you know, if a, a particular storm, let's say, like a solar hurricane, or we call them <laughs> coronal mass ejections, okay. happens to be coming past your... I like solar hurricane, actually. <laughs> ...your little electrical box, then probably you want to shut it down or it'll get charged up and maybe destroyed and... On the odd occasion, the the light from the sun expands the Earth's upper atmosphere to the point where the drag on those satellites gets increased and they're deorbited. That's a fairly extreme case, but it it has been known to happen. So you so you have the impact of the particles on the instrument, mm -hmm. and then you have the atmosphere the atmospheric heating basically dragging you, things you, in. You warm the atmosphere, it expands and satellites get dragged in. So for, for satellites, once uh, one solution is just to turn it off. Mm -hmm. And does that is that usually sufficient? I, 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 as far as I know, that seems to do a pretty good job. I mean, the, there's other more catastrophic things that can happen, but charging, charging and drag are two of the main ones. So how do you mitigate the drag problem? Switch the sun off. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a switch on the back side, maybe? That on the dark side of the sun? <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> so what is HAO's part in all this? What, go, what goes on in the, in the HAO? In the hinterlands? <laughs> right. Well, HAO is kind of, it, it kind of holds a unique place in Boulder lore plus NCAR lore. It was the first lab in NCAR. Started, you know, 75 years ago as an offshoot of the Harvard-Smithsonian. The, during the World War II effort, they realized that ground-based communications were, you know, impacts to ground-based communications, dropout and radio, was directly correlated with events that were happening on the sun. So, so they just noticed that by the correlation. There wasn't any pre-existing theory about it. Well, there was, I think there was tentative, ho there was yeah. tentative hooks that 
yeah, people kind of understood or the correlation had been around for a long time. The problem is when it's operational and you've got people's lives at risk, the the government then invested it takes in a little more attention. Yes. Usually when people's lives are affected, that takes a lot more attention. So they created an offshoot here at Climax, Climax Pass, which became the high altitude observatory that we have now, which is part of NCAR, but HEO was the first so lab of NCAR. That was 75 years ago that they established that Climax yep, Observatory. Yes, Climax Observatory. And it just observed the sun? Yes. And they used that to try to predict interference in radio? or Exactly. So they'd be looking for magnetic disturbances on the sun, which would then propagate through interplanetary space and impact the Earth, which we know a lot more about this now than they did then. Sure. But what they would notice was that the, the radio communications would get scrambled, garbled, or completely end up in the wrong place. So who were some of the originators, the pioneers of HAO there? So our kind of godfather is a guy called Walter Orr Roberts. And Walter Orr I've Roberts... i on his trail, I think. ...has a trail, and he has a rather large pink building in the south end of town on Table Mesa Drive. <laughs> rather prominent building, the Mesa Lab, and that's named after Walt. Walt um, was a real godfather not only for HAO and Boulder astronomy and astrophysics, but also for the field of solar physics and solar terrestrial physics. He's one of the really first uh, pioneers of trying to understand how the sun couples to the Earth. You know, it's as far as I'm concerned, it's one of the things that, as a civilization, we take for granted. You know, that thing rises in the morning and sets at night. But a lot of the time, the sun that we see is completely different from the one that you... The, this, this yellow opaque ball in the sky. Sure. So let's actually talk about the sun that is seen. I mean, we, like you said, you know, we see the sun rise and set and it, you know, if you stare at the sun, which you should never do, uh, you know, it, it just looks plain, but I assume your instruments see things very different than what we'd see with our, with our eyes. Yeah. It's kind of funny. It's like if you had glasses that were sensitive to magnetic fields. And so we have, we have instruments that can go up and sense you know, if I can get into, the, use the dirty term, polarization. The polarization... You'll have to of, explain what it oh, is. Oh, then I should not have <laughs> used it. No, the idea is that the the, the light has a, a sense, like, almost like a handedness, a left-handed or a right-handed screwdriver or hammer. Sure, <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that our eyes are particularly sensitive to kind of depolarized light, but mm -hmm. if by building instruments in just the right way, you can build them such that they're sensitive to magnetic fields. And so we can look at a sun that's very different. So we've known for years that the magnetic field's the big driver of uh, all kinds of activity. And you measure that magnetic field by measuring the the polarized, polarized light. Yes, the polarized light gives us ideas of things like the magnetic field strength, its angle, its orientation, etc. And it's all based on quantum mechanics, believe it or not. So things sun. like the Zeeman effect and the Hanley effect. Splitting. Are two yes. Right. The atomic lines get split in the presence of magnetic fields. And so we can have instruments that have enough spectral resolution. So can resolve those little spectral line elements well enough that we can pull the splitting apart so or sense the polarization. You're measuring the magnetic field. Mm-hmm. So then how does that connect to what else that goes on with the Earth? Well, I mean, the magnetic field is only one piece, but it's, it's the prominent energy source for the whole show. So the sun's magnetic field, the sun's, you know, atmosphere is boiling 
convecting away like crazy, like the clouds that you look at in the sky are convecting, especially on stormy days. The sun's doing that all the time, and that stirring and churring of the magnetic field, the gas drags the magnetic field around. The magnetic field likes to play partners and swaps mm-hmm. partners, and we call it reconnects. And when it reconnects and changes its shape, it loses energy. That energy is then transported into the solar system, and we often bear the brunt of it. So I know that you don't only look, say, at the magnetic field, which is one aspect, Mm but um, I know that HAO has had a history of going on eclipse expeditions, and and that's not necessarily looking at the magnetic field. Why do you you care? Eclipses are cool. Well, eclipses are really cool, Uh, but what they tell us about is the morphology of the corona, the shape. And the sh- the, and corona, the corona the is, corona is the outer envelope of the star. It's actually the bit that we live in. We live in the corona. We live in the corona. Oh, okay. We are fortunately protected by the magnetosphere, but we live unlike the Martians. So Earth has its own magnetic yeah. field that protects us from all that nasty stuff. All that nasty stuff. Makes pretty aurora. Yes, the raw <laughs> natural beauty side of space weather is the one we're probably most familiar with. <laughs> um, but we, uh, yeah, it's it, it's very challenging. And there's an eclipse actually coming up uh, in a couple of years. Yeah, it was actually two years ago the other day. Yeah. Uh, there's a total solar eclipse that's going to pass into, across the entire continental US, all the way from Oregon to North Carolina. And it'll do so in about 90 minutes. But you'll have about two and a half minutes of totality if we just step across the border to Wyoming. It'll just take care not to tip They're the so country they with get everyone every, shifting north. They get all the north. eclipses. And That's right. Where are you going to be two years from now? I've got friends and relatives that live in Riverton, Wyoming, which is right under the path of totality. How convenient. So it is. A lot of people are going to Jackson. and up, So it's, it's, uh, it's going to be quite an event. We expect upwards of 130 million people to, to see the totality. So it's a perfect opportunity for people like me to educate the general public about the sun and its impacts on Earth. So the 75th anniversary is coming up, uh, and it's celebrating all this going on. What is going to be happening for the 75th anniversary, and who's invited? So, Oh, all and sundry. So it's free and open to the public. So I'm all... You're you're all, and you must be sundry, (laughs) yeah. So it's at Center Green Drive, uh, 380 Center Green Drive in Boulder. So that's the NCAR, that's the HEO facility in North Boulder. Um, on the 31st, we will have a special showing, two special showings of Solar Superstorms, which is a new planetarium show at the Fisk Planetarium that is narrated by the great Benedict Cumberbatch. Excellent. Smog. Yes. <laughs> um, on day one of the three-day event, we will have the history and science of HAO, so it's past, present, future theme, but day one will be about the characters and the science that's been developed out of HAO in the past. Uh, day two is something we've called Astro Boulder Day, and that's because it marks several landmarks of activity across the entirety of the Boulder community. Um, and the keynote talk there will be given by Dr. John Grunsfeld, or Dr. Hubble as he's known. And John was the last person to touch the Hubble Space Telescope. Day three is all about the future, and so how the sun's going to evolve and how our program's going to evolve and how our understanding of the sun needs to change. Excellent. Well, uh, I believe people can go to your webpage, hao.ucar.edu. 
uh, to find out more. Yes. Well, thank you very much for coming in, Scott. And thanks for the same, Joel. We have been talking with Scott McIntosh, director of the High Altitude Observatory, about the past, present, and future of the observatory as it celebrates its 75th anniversary this year. For more information, you can go to their webpage at hao.ucar.edu. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. Today's show was produced and engineered by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the movie Hachi and from The Bad Plus. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Kendra Kruger. And I'm Joel Parker.